the, not very often that we get to celebrate 4th of July on Sunday morning. And so uh, we get to do that today. And we get to celebrate uh, the 4th of July together. And the celebration of 4th of July, we know, began 245 years ago. And in 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed, which was declared uh, by the 13 colonies that they were now independent of King George III and Great Britain. And in the preamble of that Declaration of Independence, of our Declaration of Independence as a nation, it says this, it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as much as we hold these truths to be self-evident, it's easy to place our confidence in things other than God. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness often become values and ideals pursued in our own strength rather than in the one who is the creator of each. And so this morning we're going to begin our summer sermon series uh, celebrating freedom. And while we're blessed by the freedoms provided in this nation... There is only one who provides true, lasting freedom. And that's what we're going to look at this morning together as we celebrate independence or freedom together. So we're going to be going from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and stand together as we read that passage, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. And this is what it says. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the freedom to gather this morning. We thank you for the freedoms that we have to proclaim the gospel to share your gospel without legal ramification. Lord, we pray for those all throughout the world where the simple mention of your name and expression of hope and truth brings persecution. We pray for those churches, God, this morning that are standing fast on your scripture, knowing that the cost is heavy. And the pain is real. So Father, we rejoice together as a people who are free to gather and worship together. And we thank you for those freedoms. And Lord, we pray that you would move amongst us this morning with your spirit as your spirit moves powerfully in our lives. Touch our hearts this morning. Give us a freshness to our relationship with you. 
God, move any self-sufficiency in me out of the way. And God, may it be complete and total dependence upon you. May your word go forth in humility. May it go forth with joy. And Father, may it encourage our hearts as you challenge us, as you teach us. And Father, as you continue to do your redeeming and sanctifying works in our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So the simplicity of this portion of text can really be summed up in this way. That true lasting freedom is not found in a nation or the law, but in Christ's loving grace. True lasting freedom is not found in a nation or the law, but in Christ's loving grace. The idea here of true lasting freedom and loving grace, that freedom is tied to the loving grace of God. And if we look at this passage, we need to kind of back up just for a moment to gain some context. And in chapter 4, verse 28 through 30, as Paul is talking about the promise of those who walk in faith, it says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul has been laying the groundwork for the Galatians to understand the freedom that they have in Christ. A freedom that was promised by God. Now that brings us to the beginning of our text this morning where then Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, we have to really be honest about this. As Americans, our understanding of freedom often is different than what freedom is in Scripture. The truth is, is that as Americans, our freedom says, don't tell us what to do, right? I mean, think about that for a minute. Most, in many of us, somebody starts telling us what to do, our natural inclination is to recoil, right? I mean, even if we know that it's the best thing, we just kind of dance around it a little bit to make it a little bit different so it's ours, right? I'd say a lot of us have that level of stubbornness to us. And I would say even as a as a, as a nation, we, we kind of pride ourselves on that. And so when we look at freedom in Scripture, we tend to see it the same way. That it's the idea that we, we get to do what, whatever we want. And in some ways, there is some truth to that. That God is a loving God. That God is opening our eyes to His truth And we're responding to His truth. And there are times in our lives where we are walking in outright disobedience to God. And there are times in life that we are kind of in this middle ground, obeying in some areas of our lives, in other areas disobeying. And other times in our lives where we are walking 
in unity with Christ, in obedience to those things that he's placing before us, no matter how difficult or how easy. See, God's freedom is not about us getting what we want. Or better yet, it's actually not about us doing what we think we want. Because in the end, God's freedom is about helping man thrive and experience His blessing and His glory. See, God's freedom removes the bondage of those things which prevent us from thriving as opposed to doing what we want to do. So God's freedom removes the bondage of those things which prevent us from thriving as opposed to doing what we want to do. Dan Duncan puts it this way. He says, man realizes innately that there's a separation between him and God, and he seeks to bridge the gap by the things that he does or the ceremonies that he engages in. And that was true of Judaism. It was true of paganism. Very different from one another, but the fundamental connection was these elemental, elemental principles. And because we want to choose our way, we want to choose our path, we tend to find sufficiency in ourself. And wherever we find sufficiency in ourself, we find bondage. One pastor says, Christian freedom is freedom from the great struggle to keep the law in an effort to win God's favor. It's an effort to win God's favor. Think about that for a minute. Think about what, how people often define a relationship with God. It's actually a, a series of things that they do and they judge themselves simply by the actions and say, man, I hope I get to heaven one day. And others who simply look at the evilness in their lives and say, well, I'll see you in hell. It's very trivial. And it's very arbitrary. And yet the freedom that God is speaking about is that we might know with confidence that we are Christ. And it begins with our understanding of this idea of freedom. Romans 6, 1 through 2, and then verses 11 through 14 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying, listen, freedom is not an excuse to continue to sin. I remember coming to Christ, and that was one of my first questions. If God's going to forgive me anyway, why not engage with sin? God didn't give grace so that we might go on sinning. God gave grace so that we might be empowered not to sin and that when we do sin, that then we can stand back up and walk with Him without condemnation, without the belief that now because we've sinned again that we are in some way distant and set apart and then done in our relationship with God. He goes on in verse 11 and he says, So, but you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
In freedom, what's happening is we are now free to walk in righteousness as God designed us to do so in His creation. We are no longer enslaved by the power of sin. And so he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now here's the thing. The very first thing that we see in this passage is an encouragement to those who profess faith in Christ. So what's that encouragement? Well, that encouragement is to stand firm in the freedom of Christ's grace. Don't be deceived back into bondage. Stand firm in the freedom of Christ's grace. Don't be deceived back into bondage. What was the temptation here? Paul recognizes that even if we understand the grace of God, that we can easily move to a place where we begin to try to pursue the law again. What do we mean? Well, think about that for a second. What Paul was dealing with in this was that there was somebody who had come in and was telling them that grace was not enough, but they needed to be circumcised as well. Circumcised being the sign of the promise. And so they were saying, guess what? Faith alone is not enough in Jesus Christ. You must be circumcised. As followers of Christ, we can do this all the time. We can become to get discouraged in our relationship with Christ. And we can believe that in some way that Christ's grace is not fully enough for us. What does that look like? Maybe it means that as I've been pursuing Christ, I realize that I've begun to get flatter in my relationship with Jesus. And my time in the Word hasn't been enough. And I begin to believe that as I've distanced myself from the Lord, that I am no longer under the promise of God. Maybe it's that I begin to look at my righteousness and begin to count the number of good things that I'm doing which offset the other things in my life. Well, hey, this lust in my life isn't so bad because, hey, man, I'm serving the poor. I'm, uh, my anger's gotten better. I'm much more, uh, much more loving towards people. It's this kind of idea that if I just do enough over here, it'll compensate for the other things over here. It's a false substitute. When you begin to serve people and you see your service as something that is granting greater approval to you by God. When we begin to view our works as a measure, as, a, as kind of a, a checklist, for maybe it's some that you believe that baptism has to be a part of salvation. All of these things are good things but they derive from a heart that is submitted to Jesus. We get baptized not because it saves us, but because we then are identifying with Christ and we so desire to follow Christ that we identify with Him in baptism 
in both his death and his resurrection. We declare to one another that Jesus is the Lord of our life. Our actions are not what make us righteous, but it is the heart being transformed by Christ as we repent and believe on Jesus through faith. And so we need to stand firm because it's easy. Ever feel like God's grace is enough for others but not quite enough for you? Self-pity is just another form of spiritual pride. Pride can look like great confidence and it can look like great pity because both are rejecting the promise that God has provided. That you have been made worthy through Jesus' worthiness. Through Jesus' blood. It is that we have a clear conscience before Christ. Ever struggled with sin? When you get into that sin, you feel so mired in it, you're just like, whatever. Might as well stay in it for a while. Because clearly I'm not pleasing God on anything. That's a misunderstanding. It wasn't our actions to begin with that made us right before God. It was Christ's action. It was Christ's work on the cross. And so that gives us the freedom to go, yeah, I screwed up, now I'm standing back up. And I'm walking forth in power, not in my own, but in Christ's. And I'm going to rest in Him. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the law, the yoke of slavery is hard. But Christ is easy. What does that mean? It means that I am able to believe on Christ. It means that I recognize that apart from me, I have nothing to offer from, to God apart from Christ. That for me, everything that I offer in my flesh is not going to appease a righteous and holy God. But it is that in Jesus, that Jesus has already appeased the wrath of God. And as we believe on Him... He actually imputes His righteousness to us. So that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. It's easy because guess what? No longer am I measuring myself against the law, but actually what I'm allowing the Spirit to do is work in my life. And so my life becomes a series of submission Is it any wonder that our culture hates the idea of submission? Is it any wonder that our flesh hates the idea of submission? Because our relationship with Jesus that is easy is a series of submission to Him. A loving submission to Him. We walk and we submit. We walk and we submit. And as we do so, God begins to change our heart and give us a new heart, which is radically different 
than just saying, man, if I could just do these five things and these five steps, I'll get it fixed. But we come to Jesus and we take the tools that we had before we knew Jesus and we start applying them as if those are the things that are actually going to grow us in righteousness. They didn't work then and they're not going to work now. We have to trust that Jesus is the one that's doing it. And so I come before the Lord and because of the work that I've seen him do, out of love, I submit to him. And as I submit to each little step, not looking at five years from now, not looking at 10 years from now, not looking at 20 years from now, but every minute saying, Lord, I'm submitted to you. God changes our hearts. He changes our desires. And he takes those desires that we always feel powerless to, that we can never overcome. And all of a sudden we begin to experience victory. Don't be deceived back into bondage. Satan would love nothing more than to make you feel like you have no power. Because you know what? That's part of the lie. And it's part of the truth. You have no power. But Christ does. And he's the one in you. And so therefore his power is working in you. We've just recently celebrated Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is the holiday which commemorates not the day that slaves were free. But it's the day that commemorates the last state, Texas, declaring slaves free in June 19, 1865. Two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Two full years after slaves were declared free, the slaves in Texas became free. D.L. Moody shares a story of the testimony of a slave woman in the South following the Civil War. She tells the story and she speaks to D.L. Moody and she says, Now is I free or been I not? When I go to my old master, he says I ain't free. And when I go to my own people, they say I is. And I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but Master says he didn't. He didn't have any right to. David Zuguzik, in his commentary, goes along and follows that along with simply saying, many Christians are confused on the same point. Jesus Christ has given them an emancipation proclamation, but their old master tells them they are still slaves to a legal relationship with God. They live in bondage because their old master has deceived them. We are not in bondage to the law if we have Jesus. Christ has set us free. He set us free from the power of sin. He set us free from the law. Two means of having relationship with God. One is to keep the law perfectly, having never sinned, and the other is through Jesus Christ. Which means there's one means of salvation because we all sin. And there is no way to keep the law perfectly apart from Christ. Acts 15, 6-11 says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Praise God. That's the freedom that we have. It's through the grace of Christ. truth is we make a lot of little legalisms we place a lot of extra burden on ourselves when christ says simply submit to me deny yourself take up the cross daily and follow me so what's the warning then the first was this encouragement to stand firm we need to stand firm as the body of christ we need to stand firm on the grace we need to understand that apart from us we had nothing to offer god it is only through jesus that we have been made pleasing in the sight of god so the warning the warning is that living by the law nullifies the blessing of christ's grace in your life Living by the law nullifies the blessing of Christ's grace in your life. Now notice three consequences of living by the law. The first in verse 2. Now this word look is not strongly stated in the ESV. It's much better in NASB or even the Greek really jumps it out. But the word is behold. Paul's actually telling them basically listen. Listen. Listen and see. Like, first of all, stand firm, but now I want you to listen and see. Because if you don't understand this, you'll never stand firm. And if you don't ever understand this, you'll never experience the power of God's grace. The first consequence of living by the law is that we lose the benefit of Christ's redeeming work. We lose the benefit of Christ's redeeming work. Simply put, we exchange Christ in His work for trusting in self. We exchange Christ in His work for trusting in self. We swap reliance on Christ for self-reliance. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus, says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whoa! Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Listen, when we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God, we have already placed and heaped a curse upon us. When you hear things that kind of come out of your, your, your mouth, things like, you know what, I know the Bible says, but I think this is the better way. Immediately think curse. It's not as passive as you think. God's Word is actually saying that you are cursed when you begin to say, my way is better than God's way. When I begin to make excuses for my behavior. When I begin to make excuses for my heart. Well, I know this is what God's Word says, but you don't understand how hard this is. Think curse. I know that God wants me to go to this person because I've offended them. But I don't know that he really means that in this situation. Think curse. The warning here is this. That when we choose to live by the law, 
when we choose to live by our own strength, we lose the benefit of Christ's redeeming work. See, Christ is all to a person or he is nothing. He's either all sufficient or he's not sufficient. He's either the blessing or not the blessing. He's not half a savior or part of a savior. He is the savior. And as Dan Duncan puts it, we're people who have to live whole in Christ. John Calvin said, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. Christ will be of no benefit to such people. It'd be kind of like having half a husband or half a wife. I'm not even sure what you do with that, right? Jesus is not interested in our half-heartedness. Because half-heartedness is simply idolatry. It's thinking what we want, what we desire, and what we find best, not what God has found best. So when we trust in the law, we're actually losing the benefit of Christ's redeeming work. Romans 3, 10 through 14 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ is the answer. He's the one that removes the curse because He's become the curse for us. He's taken our penalty and He's become the curse. And it's through faith that we have life. Think about this for a minute. Ever shared the gospel with somebody? Or frankly, maybe have you ever heard the gospel and your belief is, well, I'll figure it out when I get there. I've done enough good things in my mind to maybe account for something. The truth of the matter is, it is through Christ that we have confidence. We beg to know what God's will is for our life. We beg to know how to have a relationship with Jesus. But all of a sudden, when we have to put faith in Jesus, all of a sudden we get real squirrely. It's like, eh, I don't know if I want that kind of confidence yet. And that seems really too far-fetched. But the truth is, God has provided a way that is clear in fact, he's provided the only way. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father, but through me. That's an awesome thing. Jesus has declared his way. And the question for us is, are we going to follow that way? The second warning in here, the second consequence, is that we're obligated to keep the entirety of the law. If we reject grace and walk by the law, we're obligated to keep the entirety of the law. And so if you've never repented and believed on Christ, understand that you are obligated to keep the entirety of the law to have a relationship with God. 
And I also want to share with you this morning that you need to understand that that never happened. That as righteous as you might think you are, you have sinned. You have not kept the law in its entirety. And now, as the Scripture says, you're cursed. But Jesus is the answer to that curse. For those who have put their faith in Christ, why would we trade the redeeming power of Christ who gives us power to overcome sin, to gives us confidence in our salvation, to return to a law which has constantly held us in bondage. It's like having access to a Mustang but preferring to drive a Pinto. That's what it's like. We operate in our own strength under the covering of grace. Now, just to put that in context, there's 613 rules in the Old Testament. You have to keep every one and keep them perfectly. I don't know about you, but I can't even drive on the road and keep the five in front of me perfectly. 65 is just an advisory board, right? Stop means slow down enough that if nobody else has come and move through, right? Red? It's a challenge to get there before it turns green. And green just means whatever, right? The entirety of the law has to be kept. Look at the third consequence he shows. The first being that we lose the benefit of God's grace. The second being that we are obligated to keep the whole law. And the third is that we're severed from communion with Christ. We're severed from communion with Christ. When we choose to live by the law, when we choose to live in bondage, we're severed from communion with Christ. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Now this phrase, fallen away from grace, can be taken in two ways. The first is this. If you've chosen to live by the law, and you've submitted yourself to the law, He is giving you a warning that there is a very good chance that Christ is not in you. We need to be real about that. Legalism is not the pathway to Christ. Christ is the pathway to Christ. Faith in Christ is the pathway to Christ. But He's also saying to those who are believers... To the Galatians here who he keeps calling brothers, he's saying you're heading down this path and if you so do this, you are destroying the communion that you have with God. You're severing yourself from this communion. There'll be no joy, there'll be no hope, there'll be no love. There'll be nothing but distance. Ever tried to overcome a sin in your life and do it apart from Jesus? It's an effort that is extremely difficult. And that effort is a burden, not a joy. Because then you start looking for all the mechanisms to change in your life. And you start running towards those mechanisms and the joy gets sucked out and the hope gets sucked out and you're like, I am just enslaved to this forever. This sin will never go away in my life. When Paul spoke about the thorn in his flesh, 
he said that Jesus told him that his grace was sufficient. He did not say that from a hopeless heart. He said it from a hopeful heart and a joyful heart as a man who still wrestled with this thorn, but who experienced God's victory. Not his perfection in those moments, but his victory. Overcoming, seeing God work, seeing God redeem him the moment he fell and picked him back up. This was a life of joy and a life of hope. And we're severed from the communion with Christ. We're putting it simply in legalisms. We lose the communion that we have with God. So, we've seen the encouragement. We've seen the warning. And now we're going to see the way of life in freedom. The way of life in freedom. This is the new life that Christ talks about. And he says in verse 5 and 6, For through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What Paul was saying there was that they patiently waited through the Spirit by faith for the hope of righteousness. For Christ's return in which they would be righteous, but also for God's ongoing righteous work in their lives. You see, God, through Jesus, through His death and resurrection, on the moment that we put our faith in Christ, that we repent and believe, God grants us His righteousness. Then He begins to work that righteousness out in our lives towards others. And there will be a day when He returns in which we will be completely righteous. That when he comes, he will redeem his creation. Those who have repented and believed on him, and there will be complete righteousness. He's saying here, no, for the believer, our hope is in that day, but it's also in today that God is working, and we wait on it patiently. Ever pray to God, God, I just wish you'd take this sin away because it's just really bugging me and I need it gone. And then we get frustrated because God hasn't taken it away. That's a grace. Because what that grace is doing is it's causing you to wait patiently on Him as you submit to Him. And as you submit to Him, you wait on Him in hope and in joy. Because we can wait on Him in hope and joy because of who He is, not because of who we are. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are no longer condemned in Christ. And because of that, that way of life is simply this. Righteous hope and love through faith alone in Christ matters. Righteous hope and love through faith alone in Christ matters. The way of life is that we care about righteousness. And that righteousness comes not through our own effort, but through Jesus. Changing our heart, working in our heart.
in the same way God gives us a love. And that love produces in us a love for Him that grows and a love for others that grows. And no longer is righteousness an afterthought of, well, God's given me freedom so I can sin, but now it becomes, oh, I don't want to sin. I want the hope of Jesus in my life. And I know He's working out His righteousness. And oh, why would I want to hate these people? I love them. And oh, man, the Word of God is not just something that I have to do on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Friday morning, but the Word of God is actually communing with my Savior. In my life, one of the things that I've had to do to keep the Word of God from just becoming something else, I'll get in and get in my quiet time, and there were days where it's like I'd be in my quiet time and I'd go to study and I'd get done, and I'm like, what? It's like a textbook. But something changed when I started memorizing Scripture. And when I started implanting God's Word in my heart, memorizing Scripture, it came alive. It got it away from just this checklist. And the joy of seeing how God took His Word and began using me in opportunities where that Word was coming alive. A righteous hope and love through faith alone in Christ matters. That's the freedom we have. The freedom isn't driven by the fact that I don't have to go to you know, be in fellowship with Christ's people. It's not driven by the fact of, oh man, I, mean, I, I got to read God's word. It's that I get to do those things. I get to be with God's people. I get to be in God's word. I get to know who he is because I grow in righteousness and I love him and I love others. First Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May this be our prayer this morning. That as we think of freedom, we no longer think of it in terms of nations or of laws. But we see it in terms of Jesus. We see it from His perspective. That our freedom that we have in Christ is found in the ability to no longer sin and no longer be enslaved to those things within us that believe that we can make ourselves righteous before God. But our freedom is resting in God's righteousness already declared over us as those who are His children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power that we found in Your freedom. Not that comes from us, but only comes from You, that You have made known to us. And yet, God, in our own spirit, there are times, God, that we want to take credit for our own righteousness. So, Father, this morning, may we see that what we bring to the table is ourselves, submitted and humbled before You, and trust that You're doing Your redeeming righteous and loving work in our lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen.